You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we're going to be talking about going public, a topic that is still heavily under-encouraged and under-celebrated in Europe, but I hope things are about to change. So this week, we will catch up with Camille Leca, who is COO for listings at Euronext, the leading pan-European stock exchange, and also Oddsfere Osli, who is CEO of Pexip, a Norway-based video conferencing solution with an incredible IPO story. This episode is supported by Euronext. Hi, Kemi. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. Super. Well, I think the first question I want to ask you is, I feel like startups are obsessed with being acquired and with talking about acquisitions and the whole ecosystem just seems like obsessed with it. We hardly ever talk about IPOs. I want to know, why is getting acquired not the best exit strategy? Well, it could be. It actually very much depends on what you're looking for. If your dream is to lay down on a private island and, you know, just think about nothing, then, then your next challenge, you know, selling can be a very good option. But if, like many entrepreneurs, you would like to continue to grow the company you started from scratch, well, there are other paths that you want to explore. And IPO is one of them. Because with IPO, you can de-risk a bit your investment by doing some cash-in. But you remain there and you're going to deliver the growth plan you have been selling to the market. And to do that, you will have so much autonomy because unlike when you have VCs at your board, you have so many shareholders when you're a listed company, then you have a lot of freedom and independence. Obviously, there is a cost that is associated to it. It is transparency. Uh, investors need to understand where you're trying to go and where you stand. But if you put that on the side as an entrepreneur and as a founder and as a CEO, this is a perfect way for building up your company, going further and you know, trying to, to become a very, very big player. Yes. When you phrase it like that, it's almost like acquisitions are the lazy entrepreneur solution, <laughs> even though that's definitely not the case. Um, and tell me, why specifically an IPO? An IPO can help you achieve different things. Um, the thing that is the most put forward is financing at the time of the IPO and after the IPO, because you can get access to a lot of cash in quite a timely manner and for quite a low cost. Um, but there are other advantages that comes with it. For example, liquidity as a key setup. Anyone can sell at a you know well-known price at any point in time. Your other founders, your historical partners, your shareholders, your employees, anyone. So that that's one thing. Another thing is build-up. Uh, uh, being listed is a great build-up tool. You can acquire a lot of companies through issuance of uh, new shares. So you don't have to finance in cash, which is a, a game changer if you want to go fast and, and, and go big. So that, that's one thing. And, and after, there are many other advantages that comes with it. Could be, um, you know, being credible when you try to internationalize yourself. It can be, you know, trying to attract more talent because you can give them um, highly liquid stocks. And, you know, there are many things. There is one example that I like to put forward as... Um, Portuguese company, very profitable one, never needed money from the market, but they decided to list because to be a NASA provider, you know, you need to be listed. So you have full range of reasons. 
But financing, liquidity, and build-up are obviously the ones that are being put forward. So Interesting. I really would have never imagined that there are other reasons other than financial to list. That's crazy. Um, and now tell me, because we often, when we think about IPOs, we tend to think a lot about the U.S. market and, and exchanges. Um, but what are the advantages of listing on Euronext? Well, we talk about a lot about the U.S., you're right. Uh, we especially talk a lot in Europe about NASDAQ. I think they're very good at marketing. But in practice, not many companies, not many European companies choose to go in the U.S. Um, I think in France for the last 10 years, we're talking about three companies, very well-known ones, but not more than that. And there are very good reasons for that. You have plenty of cash available in Europe, but plenty. Uh, that, that's, not a, that's not an issue. And, um, and you know, if you want to go to the U.S., the costs are much more expensive. Um, for example, an IPO costs you roughly 8% of the proceeds you're going to raise in Europe. In the US, it's more 15. So it, it may be worth the play, but you know it depends how much return you get on your investment, extra investment, so to say. So it really depends what you're looking for. So most of the time, what companies do is that they list in Europe, get a lot of international investors. For some sectors like life sciences, more than 70% of investors in Europe are American. They're very well aware of the value of the companies we have. And after, you know, if they want to go further, and maybe if they want to provide to U.S. investors um, no currency issue or steady um, trading time zones because you don't have the, the, the jet lags, sort of say, then you can decide to do something that we call dual listing. So you are listed in Europe and in the U.S. And today that's a common way of getting started. You start in the Europe, get visible, get successful, and then you may decide to be listed in two places. Interesting. You have any examples of companies that have done that? Yes, many uh, biotech lately, uh, for example, Genfit or DBV Technologies decided to do that. So they actually it's uh, because they were so successful in Europe and that there were so many U.S. investors active in their portfolio that at some point in time they said, OK, guys, you are like massive clients of us, let's sort of say. So we need to you know, be also listed in a venue where dollar as the trading currency, you are not exposed to currency changes and you have a you know, full day of trading. So th that's why they did that. So that's a quite a common thing to do. Very interesting. Um, and now I want to know specifically, what do you do at Euronext? So Euronext is the biggest stock exchange in Europe. So we operate financial markets in France, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Portugal, in Ireland, in Norway, and normally very soon in Italy. But people get confused about what is the role of a stock exchange. Um, so we are basically an IT company. We run a very sophisticated and heavily regulated platform where we connect companies that are willing to get funds to finance their growth and investors that are willing to put money on the table in order to get some return. And we do that and we put a lot of services around it. And this is derivatives, ETF, you know, data, and, and we aggregate that. And my job is to help companies to identify if an IPO makes sense for them or not. Super. I think a lot of companies at Station F would probably want to talk to you. Um, Give me some examples of companies that have listed on Euronext. So you have a bunch because there is a lot of diversity because you have, when you talk about stock market, you talk about equity story. What are your perspectives of growth? It doesn't really matter the number of employees you have or if you do turnover or if you don't have some. So I'll just give you a few examples that shows the diversity of it. Um, I think two years ago, we got Naspers. So Naspers is a 100 billion uh, Euros companies active in, in media and digital. So that was a huge one. And last December, I got Opium, 
Uh, opium is a um, hydrogen car. You know, they're trying to become the Tesla uh, of hydrogen in Europe. And they're worth 12 billion, 12 billion euros. So you have a lot of diversity. And this is, you know, a very good reflection. But if you look at very key brand names, we had Adyen, we had the Pixip this year, uh, you know, like uh, being a <laughs> webcast company in a, in a COVID crisis was a good momentum for, for doing an IPO. But, but I wouldn't want your, um, you know, station F audience to think that you have to be very big to do an IPO. It can start at 20 million, 30 million fundraising. So today it's quite small. It very much depends on your strategy. Oh, that's that's really good to know, and I think probably a lot of station up companies didn't have that in mind. Um, so, I mean, you've mentioned now the number, but when is a good time in the life of a startup or a life of a company to think about an IPO? To think, you shouldn't wait too much, <laughs> because when you negotiate with your P funds, uh, you know your your agreements, it's always good to know that maybe you may want to look at it in the future because that helps you drafting the, the notices in a different manner. And if you want to do an IPO, it's kind of intense. So you better have that in mind early so that you get prepared with your governance, with your IFRS, you know, wh whatever you will need, um, because uh, uh, an IPO is like a, a tunnel. So you need to have everything well structured before. But in terms of timing, I think most of the time an, um, the need for exit is a trigger. You know, you have your funds or you have your founders that are willing to, to look at it, at doing an exit. So it comes naturally. Sometimes it's because you need a lot of funds. And, you know, some sectors are more well-funded by, uh, by the VC scene than others. So th those can be triggers. But I would advise that you reach out to, to people that know that two to three years in advance of a potential listing. And, well, at Euronex, we organize a lot of trainings for, for companies that just would like to understand what it means and you know, if they decide to go for it, how to how to do it. Wonderful. And I think you mentioned earlier your specific role was very involved in kind of helping startups get to that, that point. Um, so when a company comes to you, tell me, what does that process look like? What do you actually take them through? So we try to understand what's a rush. Um, and, uh, and depending on where they stand, either it's, you know, an IPO could be an issue in the next 12 months, then, you know, we have to, to go through the, the straight route and get them to meet some advisors, get to meet some investors, stock market investors, uh, who are a bit different than, uh, than private equity investors, so that they can test the appetite of the market and, you know, refine the equity story and, and, and get started. But when we have a bit more time, which is what we try to do, we try to channel them through one of our programs, and we have built something called TechShare, and, and, and we work with BPI, with uh, many, many uh, associations on that, where for almost a year, we bring together every year 150 European entrepreneurs and we teach them about, okay, what is an IPO? What's the objective? How can you leverage your wealth management perspective at the time of the IPO? What are the actors? What are the different steps? Everything. And we try to get them coached as well um, because, you know, sometimes, you know, when you have been very focusing on your business, you need to take a step back so that if they decide to go for it, it will be easier. That's wonderful. And so this is called TechShare. How can companies, do they apply? Do they get selected? How does it work? They have to apply. There is a jury. Um, we tend to work through selection partners. So for example, in France, it's a BPI, it's France Biotech, it's Green Univers, it's a Croissance Plus, uh, it's a, um, France Digital. So, you know, all the, the, the key and well-identified players. If a company is not part of this, you know, nebuleuse, 
uh, they can reach out to Euronext directly and we will help them and explain them what it's about. Super. I think that's probably a really good resource. What you just mentioned to take advantage of all that free training and and coaching, and um, I think it probably helps a lot. So, what's an example of a tech share participating company that actually did an IPO? We had a very interesting case last year. Uh, there was a fintech company, a Belgian one called Unified Post, that followed TechShare three years ago. And uh, because TechShare is a program where we try to target companies two to three years ahead of a potential listing. And they went for an IPO this year. They raised a bit more than 200 million euros. It was super successful. It was raised in two minutes. No, okay. not two possible. Minutes. <laughs> yeah. Because in COVID period of time, everything was made digitally. So they were some of the first companies to do all the roadshow. The roadshow is a period where you pitch uh, you know, your equity story to stock market investors um, through web conferences. And you know, it was not a big problem at all because in two minutes, they more than covered what they did. So... That is an incredible story. What are common pitfalls or misconceptions that you see from different companies that approach you? So you have two very different things. Um, some companies believe that the stock market is only for very big companies. They think about CAC 40 or FTSE, and so they, they consider that they do not meet the requirements and that they won't be attractive enough. So that's the first misconception. And other, uh, which is quite the opposite, uh, tend to forget that in the end, uh, stock market investors are rational investors and that there is no free lunch. So when you go to do an IPO, you are selling a growth story uh, to people that are going to bet on you. And if six months after the IPO, you're already way behind and you're doing what we call a profit warning, well, the trust relationship is ending there. And so I think it's this split between, um, oh no, it's not for me, I'm way too small. and yeah, come on, that's Eldorado, you can get free money and, you know, just, just continue where you need to be working on so that entrepreneurs have a great life as a listed company and uh, let's say uh, the IPO is only the beginning of the journey. Yeah, I agree with you. There's definitely misconceptions that we hear a lot. Um, and finally, I want to finish on a point that's really about some concrete advice. Um, you've talked a little bit about some of the resources that are available, when is a good time, um, that doesn't apply to all companies. We've heard a lot of different things, but what is some concrete advice? And maybe you could think about um, addressing this to a young startup audience like the one that we have at Station F um, to help them kind of prepare and consider an IPO in the future. So you need to have a strong management team with you. Because doing an IPO and after being a, li a listed company takes some management time. You need to talk to investors, you need to be involved in there. And so the rest of the business needs to be running. So it means that it cannot be a one-man show. You need to have uh, strong people with you. And that's good for an IPO, but I think that's good for any business anyway. So I think it's not a lost advice if you put that into place. Super. And what, what specifically in terms of a management team? And is there something specific that you're looking for? Experience, cohesion? You need um, experience, you need cohesion, you need autonomy of the different top managers than you have because they cannot all rely on, on the senior people and you need a very good governance. Super. Well, Kemi, I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more IPOs. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Next up, we have PECSIP CEO, Odd Svere Osli, who prefers to go by OS. Hi, OS. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on, Roxanne. Wonderful. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you because essentially you have built this incredible Zoom competitor from Europe based in Norway. 
um, that a lot of people I feel have probably not heard about, but you have an incredible story, an incredible IPO story as well that we'll come to in a moment. But before we get into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about really what you guys do? Sure. So uh, what Pexib really is, it's a company delivering video meeting solutions. And uh, what is special about it, our end users tell us that uh, they get a you know high quality video and audio experience. They get uh, unparalleled reach because of the interoperability. And they're also very happy with the privacy and security that we offer. And that's on the one side, the end users, the, the IT buyers, the IT department, they get a lot of flexibility, they can do a lot of integrations, they can choose the security standards that they want to adhere to, and a lot of choice on how to consume this. They can buy it as a complete cloud solution, or they can buy the software for themselves to run in their own data center or cloud of choice or, or hybrid. And that makes Pexip a preferred provider, in particular amongst the largest enterprises on the planet, as well as public sector. And customers of ours includes more than 15% of the global Fortune 500 companies and organizations like the European Parliament, European Commission, as well as in the US, the US Army and, uh, and the NASA, the space uh, agency. I just think it's incredible because when we actually looked at like who some of the customers are and uh, we looked into the, the story of Pexip, we were like, my God, how come everyone is talking about Zoom? They should be talking about Pexip. Um, tell us just quickly, who are some of the customers, the, the bigger names that people would recognize? Yeah, so I, I mentioned a few of them being um, being the, uh, you know, in Europe, the European Parliament, European Commission. I think in um, in general, we are careful talking about the names of, of our of customers, but uh, of the Fortune 500, it, it includes uh, customers like uh, Accenture, Vodafone, uh, Orange Business Services is both a customer and user customer as well as a one of our channel partners. We, we sell 100% through channel partners. So that's a kind of examples of that. On on public sector, it includes um, more than um, call it uh, uh, just doing meetings, uh, uh, but it also includes uh, a lot of uh, integrations into call it B two C workflows. So, for instance, now in healthcare, we run more than fifty percent of the patient doctor. Uh, video visits in uh, the US because we have customers like the uh, the Veterans Affairs, uh, the uh, the DHA, which is the military, you know, serving part of uh, they have their healthcare system, as well as uh, some of the largest private sector healthcare foundations like uh, Kaiser Permanente. We do a bit similar in Europe. I can't talk uh, about uh, all of them, but I can talk, for instance, about in the in the UK now during COVID, all of the Virtual uh, the court hearings have gone virtual, right? So uh, Pexip is providing the uh, the uh, the platform for the uh, Minister of Justice in in the UK as uh, as an example. Incredible. So I think it's maybe not even the right comparison to, to compare you to Zoom. You guys do quite a bit more. Um, and so one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today was specifically about your IPO story. Um, and you guys actually went public in the middle of the pandemic last year, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I saw in the press that some articles even called it the, the perfect IPO. So I want to know, can you tell us like what exactly happened and what made it the perfect IPO? 
Yeah, I, I, I think in retrospect, of course, being able to uh, do the IPO and do it, uh, you know, more than 20 times uh, oversubscribed and, um, and uh, yeah, in general, being able to, to complete it makes it a success. But I think what led up to the IPO was, um, was long before COVID-19. It was really uh, after summer 2019 where we as a company had uh, done really well. We, uh, we had grown, we had taken in capital uh, a bit in different turns over our history from 2011, but always getting to profitability and positive cash flow b- before raising more money. But we had raised only $25 million in total. And uh, we were then at the end of 19, we were at $47 million in annual recurring revenue, you know, uh, subscription-based revenues. So quite a good ratio. And we were uh, growing by more than 30%, more than 25% EBITDA. But, so we were doing well, but then we were thinking, um, well, we don't want to take as much risk as maybe some of our friends in Silicon Valley. We we can be, in Europe, we can be a bit too conservative in terms of uh, putting the uh, foot to the pedal when we have the opportunity. So, so we were, you know, let's let's uh, accelerate more and um, raise more money through through the uh, through an IPO, and we then work towards that. We even got to do some uh, very early early look meetings, it's called, with investors in uh, in uh, London and New York uh, early January, doing it the traditional way, right? Uh, traveling over, going into person meetings, one hour meetings, then half an hour to the next meeting, rushing in the... Uh, in, uh, in in a car to to go through 10 to 12 meetings every day. And that was the way we were told, this is the only way to do this. You have to do this in person. Um, but then, of course, uh, uh, March came and, uh, and uh, virtually lockdown everywhere. And we were also then afraid, you know, can we actually do this IPO? Because we were confident we could do it on video, but uh, the financial markets, is there any money available? Do the, the institutional found fund managers, do they have time to do anything else than worrying about their existing investments? So we waited a couple of weeks, but then uh, during April, we, we then did a full virtual IPO. Um, we visited, I think, uh, more than 20, 30 cities across the world virtually. We, we met more than 50, 60 uh, investors uh, one-on-one. We, uh, of course, had a lot of group meetings as well. And uh, it ended up a success, of course, in, in the end. We, we, we were afraid, but it did end up a success. And um, another metric on that is that all of our one-on-one meetings with investors ended up in uh, the investors wanting to, to sign up to, to, um, to the IPO. Wow. So, yeah. That's, that's incredible. So essentially, it became a virtual roadshow. It became a virtual roadshow, and I think also a um, a inspiration, at least for for uh, for the banks that were involved, and I think for hopefully for others doing IPOs as well. That um, um, it's not even you know um, uh, as good as doing it in person. It's it's a lot better because you can reach so many more people uh, in a uh, shorter amount of time, and. Um, you do get still the personal, you know, uh, interaction through through video and the first, you know, look people in the eye. Do they believe in these numbers? Do do you feel confident on on trusting them with their money? Um, but it's uh, so so you get that, but then you get that without all the logistical nightmares of uh, of uh, traveling, where in fact you often end up traveling only to say London, Frankfurt, and uh, New York, right? Well. You should be able to reach investors uh, 
in any parts of, uh, of the planet. Interesting. I, I definitely wouldn't have expected you to be against a virtual roadshow, but I think also uh, that's really interesting to hear how successful it actually was. That, that really speaks highly of, uh, of the fact that it worked. Now, I'm, I'm also wondering because a lot of companies in Europe, and I feel it's just the, the general culture, we don't have a reflex to think about going public. I think a lot of young companies, when they get started out, they just think the only exit route is to get acquired. And I'm assuming that you guys had some acquisition offers in your in your past. Is that correct? I would at least say that uh, what we preferred to do here was uh, to go IPO. And I think uh, to some extent that this is not uh, the, the first Rodeo we are attending. So uh, a lot of us have background from uh, Tanberg, uh, in the, which people some people might remind was the worldwide leader in business video conferencing, was acquired by Cisco in 2010. Um, so what we also were um, eager to do was to build um, something that is uh, to last, right? A, a company that can have a, a, a real impact more than just uh, building something that, that we can sell, sell off. Uh, so, so I think that that is a, a big part of the, uh, the motivation, but I also think that's the motivation you need to have because in the end, of course, you might get, you know, a, a attractive offer from uh, from a uh, strategic investor or a tech company, and it might be a great fit. But I but I think if you if you don't run the company as uh, there is no tomorrow and uh, and uh, and uh, your future is uh, is great as a standalone company, I think uh, you will not succeed. Yeah. So I think it's important to have that, and I will also add that I do think it is important for Europe now to start having the ambition to to have more tech companies that can stand on their own feet uh, we have all the uh, the uh, you know right uh, things in in play for us to to be able to do it i think it's more about um, having a mindset that we actually dare uh, building tech companies that uh, that have a a global footprint. I definitely agree with you and i think it's it's great to see also that it was really a long term vision that led you guys to to do an IPO. I have to ask you though, why did you not list in the US? That's a good question. We, we did discuss that as well. And um, uh, I think in the end, uh, we found that, uh, well, we listed in Norway, but really on Euronext platform, right? So it's, uh, it's pan-European in that sense and uh, have the same access. I, th I think that the, the 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 primary upside of invest of uh, listing in the U.S. would be to get access to U.S. retail investors. Um, we found that most uh, U.S. institutional investors, so the big guys, so to say, they didn't have any issue uh, or don't have an issue investing in in Europe per se. So the the actual universe that uh, we would access um, wasn't that much more uh, attractive to us. And although it must be said that it seems that, uh, you know, being listed in the US, you by default get uh, higher multiples. Um, but I think uh, for, for us, the, the main thing was then um, we, we kind of get access to, to capital as we want here. And also we are a European company. Uh, so why shouldn't we be at least primary listed here in the future? Who knows? Maybe, uh, may, maybe we will consider doing a, a dual listing. Interesting. So there's no downside, essentially, what I heard to, to listing in Europe. But is there? Did you find that there's any actual advantages to listing in Europe? 
Uh, I think uh, regulatory. It was uh, a bit less uh, paperwork uh, to to uh, to go through, and uh, in particular doing it in the Nordics and uh, and um, in Norway. And um, you know we have more of a you know the the the, the general approach to uh, to law and legal is more. Um, intentional, you know, based versus having to uh, to detail everything to the last paragraph. I think that uh, also suits uh, suits us well, at, at least in the stage we are now. Super. Well, OS, it's been fascinating learning about your your IPO journey. I'm going to end on one last question. Can you give some advice to any companies that would be interested in listing in Europe? What did you have any learnings? Anything that you think you know they should be prepared for this particular moment? I think um, it's uh, fundamentally around uh, building a, a sound business. And uh, that is, um, in the end, the, the most important thing is to surround yourself with uh, passionate people that, uh, that uh, are you know, both complementary and, uh, and uh, share the same drive as, as you. I think um, uh, building that, that business model and, and making a sound business is the most important thing. Before thinking IPO, I think it's um, the money you 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 should be getting money in the initial phases from uh, from uh, investors that uh, are part of the team, right? Then uh, you should seek knowledge uh, uh, before the money or or smart money rather than uh, than uh, than than just money itself. When you then go um, IPO, I think um, you do that when you are at a stage where um, it's natural. Uh, you have had some private investors. Uh, you are at a size where it makes sense. You are. You should definitely have uh, have uh, solid financials. But then, uh, uh, by seeking primary uh, funding, it, you should also, of course, have a significant acceleration potential. So I, I think you do it when you you have proven yourself and you have a um, a significant opportunity by uh, by. Um, by uh, getting more additional funding. Wonderful. Well, that's some very sound advice for us to end on. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right, see you soon.